The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Three cheers. Three cheers for Sean, father of three, soon to be four. Um, thank you, Sean. As we're doing that and I'm getting turned on, this is fine. They preached without amplification for years and years. Um, would you stand? Because this morning we're going to look at Zephaniah. You may not know where that is, but it's in the Old Testament. It's right before Haggai, and you probably don't know where that is either. Um, but we're going to read in chapter 3 of this great little book. We're going to begin in verse 14, and we're going to end through the uh, finish in the end of, of this book of Zephaniah. And as we are talking about God's transformation for His people, and we've been looking at that in this summer, as I was kind of called to step into this space and, and to pick up on this theme, Bill was going to look at one passage in Isaiah 43 that was re- really critical for this. And in the uh, succinct time that I had uh, to look at this, I went to another one that's really dear to my heart. So I hope that the Lord would speak to you uh, through the, His words this morning. uh, Zephaniah 3, verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And as we begin, I'm going to take another moment and ask the Lord to to be with us um, as we go through this text. Father, you are kind to your people would you shower your grace upon us would you would we hear from your word then would your spirit impress the truths of your gospel upon our hearts lord would you teach us a new song in jesus name amen so in this series we've been looking at what it means to be transformed as a church at hilton head presbyterian we we desire to see lives transformed through the power of the gospel as I have talked in the last few weeks, as I've been up here, what we know is that it's often slower than we expect, and it's a lot harder than we would have imagined. But the Lord is faithful, and He perseveres alongside us, and He gives us grace for the journey to be transformed from one degree of glory into another, to reflect more fully who He is and what He's doing. We've looked at this in various expressions, and so the idea uh, of this sermon is to tie it all together as we launch next week into the book of Acts. 
where we continue to look at the transformation that God brings through His unfolding drama of redemption in the lives of the early church. We saw disciples as we studied Luke who, who often didn't seem to get it. There were a lot of questions, and the reality is if I'd have been one of them, I wouldn't have gotten it either. But we see that in Acts 1-8, the, the Spirit descends upon them and gives them power to be Christ's witnesses. And from there, the, the, the pieces begin to come together, and they go out with boldness and, and, and communicating the unstoppable uh, reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, we come and we look at this passage, and what we find is that God's unfolding drama of redemption was still at play in the same manner in the Old Testament. In the book of Zephaniah, what you may not know just off the top of your head is that this is a book that was written in a season of tremendous um, national corruption. God's people had turned away from God and were worshiping all the, the, the national uh, foreign uh, deities. Altars to Baal had been set up by the king of Judah. There it talks about in verse 5 of chapter 1, it uses a, a word milkom, which is a, a variation of, of, of the name of the god Molech, which actually is talking about this whole reality to where in this false worship it involved child sacrifices. And, and so this is the place that God's people in, in, in the nation of Judah had, had inhabited. Josiah was eight years old when his, father's di when his father died and he became king. And Josiah, the child king, would be used to bring about a national reformation and a revival through God's people turning back to his word, to hearing it and to receiving it and to be transformed by it. When we talk about transformation, that's what we mean. To hear the word of the Lord, to receive it, and to be transformed by it. As it tells us in Isaiah 55, his word will accomplish what he intends. It will not return to him void. And so God sends it out. And what we find, as Thomas Boston once said, is the same light of the gospel that melts the ice of some hearts also hardens the clay. And that's part of his Redemption, that's part of his plan, that's part of what we don't understand. But what we even more so don't understand is why God would show grace to sinners like me. And so we step into this space and we look at this book of Zephaniah. And if you were to say, what's the big theme of Zephaniah? The theme of Zephaniah is the day of the Lord and its imminent arrival. Now, in the Old Testament and even in the New, the, the day of the Lord speaks of God's judgment upon sinful people. It's the pouring out of His wrath, the, the bringing about of the consequences and punishments that are due for disobeying God's word and rejecting Him as king, of having false worship and, 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 and pursuing other things with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and not loving our neighbor as ourself. We find this this book in its first two and a half chapters to be very heavy. 
It reminds us of the broken systems of the world that we so often put our trust in. It reminds us of the brokenness of our own hearts. It reminds us of the sin and the shame that entangle us and so often form our own understandings of who we are and frame the way we look at the world. And here in this passage, we find a a, a turn, a hinge, where we move from this imminent reality of the day of the Lord and the, the judgment and heaviness that comes with it to a glimmer of hope. The inbreaking of the gospel into this situation. And what we find is that it comes through a song. It starts in verse 14. It says, Sing aloud, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O Israel. What I want us to understand and what I want us to see in this space is that God is trying to teach His people a new song. He is trying to teach them a new song. The the promise of judgment has been given in preparation for the redemption from God's Word. And in that, He's stepping into this space so that they would learn to sing His praises. I want you to think for a moment of the power of song, the power of music. In your current state, how you're feeling mentally, how you're feeling emotionally, your, your financial situation, the, the, the health diagnosis of a loved one, the relational situation that you may have with your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or the one you may not have at all, the, the, the insecurity that we deal with on a day-to-day basis, the, the slight word that just got under our skin at work, You think about all these things, or perhaps it's an anniversary, a birthday, a celebration, a deal closed, and there's great excitement over this achievement. What would you say would be the soundtrack of your life today? What's the soundtrack of your life? You see, music impacts us. It influences us. I have found myself coming to church on a Sunday morning, listening in the early morning of Sunday of what I was listening to on Saturday night, saying, I can't listen to Chris Stapleton on the way to worship. (laughs) I need a different mindset. Some of us are just in a place where we need a different mindset. Some of us are in a place where we just need a new song. And Israel needed a new song. And what God does in this passage and what we'll see that comes through transformation is the way that he teaches it to them is he sings it to them. And so as we look at this passage of seeing the the, the preparation of God's word and his redemption, we're going to look at four things that God does to teach us that song. The first thing that God does is the Lord enters into our sinful brokenness. The Lord enters into our sinful brokenness. If you look in this passage in verse 15 and then later in verse 17, it tells us something very profound in a very economy of words. It says, the Lord is in their midst. It says, the Lord is in their midst. He is present with them. He is beside them and in front of them and behind them and all around them. The Lord has 
entered into the brokenness of our lives. He's entered into the pain and suffering that, that just gnaws at our soul. He, he has entered into the, to the systematic brokenness of our political, financial, and other systems in our world. The Lord has entered into our brokenness. One songwriter said, Love is not afraid of what it finds in the dark. And the Lord is stepping into the brokenness of a corrupted system and, and people who don't worship Him with their heart, soul, mind, and strength and are giving their attention to, to false national deities and, and worshiping them. There's a lack of trust in their own lives and a faithfulness that isn't given to the Lord. And the Lord says, I will be with you. I will not give up on you. I will show up when you need me. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, we find the, the most prominent pinnacle, climax, declaration of this is in the person of Jesus, who was also called Emmanuel, or God with us. In John 1, it talks about how the Word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelled amongst His people. The significance of the tabernacle is not lost for people in Israel. The tabernacle was at the very center of the heart of the nation of Israel. Later in its expression of the temple, it was the centerpiece of all of the nation. They would orient themselves around in proximity to where this was. And God was there in the midst of His people. And they're arguing and fighting. And they're chastising their children and their shame and their brokenness. The Lord was sitting there as a reminder that He was with them and that He had not given up on them and that He was alongside them. It was a reminder, especially for the children of Israel as they prepared to go into the promised land in Deuteronomy 31, 6-7, that I will never leave you nor forsake you. I have pledged myself with you, to you. And while others may leave and others may not show up, I'll be there. The Lord has entered into our brokenness. He said He is in our midst. And in that, He's beginning to teach us a new song. The second thing He says is just really profound. It says, The Lord quiets our hearts with His love. Look at me in verse 18. Or verse 17, sorry. It says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. Now think again of how you entered into this space and the wrestling and the stirring in your own soul. What is it that you use to quiet that noise in yourself? For some of us, it's images on an internet. For others, it's something in a bottle. For others, it's a few more hours in the gym to get down to that size or to get that we would be more trim and fit to answer the voice that we heard when we were children that said, a moment on the lips is a lifetime on the hips. And I've seen a mom say that to their child, not my wife. Um, those things stick with us. And they, they gnaw at us. 
And we carried them into adulthood. And many of us in this room are, are just fighting tooth and nail to, to quiet those voices. But what we find is that every time we achieve something, that voice just kind of kicks back up. And what does it tell us? That we're not enough. It accuses us of some perceived deficiency in our own lives that we're all too aware of. It moves from an accusation of being not enough to a sense of shame in our life. To where we feel bad. And we feel unworthy. And we feel that we don't belong. And ultimately what happens in that sense of shame and the psychology of it is it moves from a feeling that I am bad or I am not enough, that it just becomes our identity. And that's just the way we look at ourselves. And we think everyone else looks at us that way. We enter into that place of shame, that, 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 that covering of shame to where it saturates us to our core and it begins to frame our very identity. And in that space... The Lord steps in, and when he enters into our brokenness, he begins to quiet that voice. The way he quiets it is by being louder than it, and being more beautiful than it, and to speak truth over it that exposes the lie of that voice. It tells us he quiets us by his love. When our first daughter was a baby, we were getting her immunizations. Now, if you're a first-time parent, or you're going to be a first-time parent, those immunizations are just no fun. There's adults in this room that get a cold sweat thinking about a needle. And so I go into this, this doctor's office, and I give them my child, who I think could go no, do no wrong, and I think is the most perfect thing on the face of the earth. And they stab her with a needle. <laughs> and then they give her back to me, kicking and screaming. And she is mad, and she doesn't know what's going on. I hate to sing. It's not that I hate to sing. I hate the sound of my voice. And so I won't sing. Unless I'm standing next to me, someone next to me that's either louder than me or just sounds better than me. And then, then I might sing. But in that moment, in holding my daughter, what I began to do was to sing over her. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond compare. And, and in that moment, I'll never forget it, she just hushed. She heard the sound of her father's voice singing over her. She didn't have a clue what I was doing, but there was a comfort. And, and that's what's powerful about it. Is that's what God does for us, because he needs to comfort us. Because he needs to change and cancel out the voice that we're listening to. Because those voices don't have our best interests at heart. They don't want us to flourish. And they're not for our redemption. So the Lord moves in to teach us a new song. To quiet the voice of the accuser. He, he, he's trying to quiet my own voice. And the way I speak to my own heart. And that he, he does it through love. 
of reminding me of who he is and what he's done and his covenant with his people, that he'll never leave nor forsake us. And it doesn't matter how foul I am, that he will forgive me and show mercy to me. And so the way that he moves from there, now, and I've kind of tied these two together, it says he will exult over you with loud singing. The Lord rejoices in us by singing over us. Think about for the, when was the last time someone sang over you? For 99.9% of us, it's at our birthday. And probably better than half of us don't even like that. We just want to get through it and blow out the candles so that we can quit being the center of attention. But the Lord who's in our midst, who's quieting the stirrings of our heart, comes and he, he just focuses on us with this laser concentration. He begins to sing and rejoice over us. Think about the, the creator of heaven and earth who spoke universes into existence through the power of his word, who parted the Red Seas, who brought the plagues upon Egypt, who, who is redeeming a people to himself, sitting there and looking at us and our brokenness, and he's quieting us and he's singing us a song. We say, no, I should be singing you a song. And he says, you don't know what song to sing. So I have to teach it to you. And after we hear it for a while, we, we begin to kind of pick up the words. And after we begin to pick up the words, we, we might even be inclined to join in singing with him. Because what we begin to do is maybe believe that he means what he says. And so what he does is he comes in and he sings over us. He's canceling out the shame. He's canceling out the brokenness. He says, I'm going to make you whole. I'm going to make you the way I intended you to be. as, As another songwriter says, I wish you could see yourself as beautiful as I see you. And he continues to sing over us and to rejoice over us. You know why that's so hard? Many of us never experienced it as a child. Nobody told us they were proud of us. Nobody told us they loved us. We've just grown to distrust people. And so we distrust God. But God's saying, I have have to quiet all those things. So I'm going to do it by singing. And what's so beautiful in this is there's this reality, if you think back to the birthdays, why do we sing for someone on a birthday? Because we're celebrating the gift of the present that they are to us. And so the Lord, when he's singing to us, he is celebrating the gift that we are to him. That he loved us while we were still enemies and gave his own son for us. That he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The Lord is trying to teach us a new song. He's trying to teach us a new song. You, you scoot down a little further and you get into the, verse 19. It says, Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. 
And I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. That weakness that you have, that brokenness that you struggle with, that thorn in your flesh, as Paul the Apostle called it, it ultimately becomes the instrument of redemption. It leads away from our pride, away from our arrogance, the way that our, uh, from our uh, self-presumed ways that we know better than anyone else. And in that, he leads us to this place where we become like the Apostle Paul, that we say, my grace, where he understands that God's grace is sufficient for him and his power is made perfect in our weakness. And the Lord, through being present with us and entering into our brokenness and quieting us and singing over us, we begin, he turns our shame into praise. He removes the suffering. He removes the pain. He removes the sin. And he brings about forgiveness. And as it tells us in another prophet, he removes them as far as the east is from the west. And I will remember them no more. God, who is omniscient and all-powerful, selectively chooses to look at you and not remember those things. He casts them out of his mind. He says, that's not who you are. That's not who you are anymore. You are my child, you're beloved, and I sing over you and I celebrate you in order to comfort you, in order to conform you into the image of your Savior. Because while Zephaniah is so much about the day of the Lord, the promise of the gospel in Zephaniah, the truth that we need to hear in order to be transformed, is that the day of the Lord has already taken place for everyone who's been saved by grace and through faith. God doesn't say, I don't do it anymore. The day of the Lord, it's not that it's all of a sudden canceled. No, it was poured out on Christ on the cross. And Jesus endured the wrath. And Jesus endured the shame. And Jesus endured the pain. And he was broken so that we would become whole. So that our shame would become praise. And he was removed and outcast. So that we could be gathered in. And that we would have assurance. We'd have confidence. That the Lord delights in us as he delighted in him. And that we would never be forsaken. Now this might seem like a bit odd for a sermon on transformation. But let me say this. Until you're able to speak and sing that song to your own heart, you will never step into the transformation that God desires for you. If you can't begin to to, to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Um, If you can't sing that, and maybe God doesn't want me to sing it to you all, (laughs) Um, but if you can't sing that, then how are you ever going to know that you're loved? How are you ever going to believe the gospel? How are you going to know that he he loved you and has pursued you throughout all eternity? That's what it means to learn a new song. And each of us is learning that. And each of us is learning it a little more each day. 
And so as we go out from here, and as we move into Acts, and as we just simply go about our Sundays, my hope and prayer for you is that you would begin to listen to a different voice. And that you would encounter and experience the beauty and the truth and the gospel of the God who sings over you. Let's pray. Our great God and King, we thank you for your mercy and grace. That you have loved us first. And that you sing over us. Teach us a new song. Give us the faith to believe it. Impress it upon our hearts. So that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Lord, that we would live in a way that represents the fullness of who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, we thank you that you turn our shame into praise. In Jesus' name, amen.